And Murray and Brian had a pretty violent argument. Uh, Murray told him that he would never be a man. And uh, Brian ripped his glasses off and uh, threw the glasses on the ground and broke them and said, I, I, you know, I'm more of a man than you'll ever be. friends welcome back to the sail on podcast this is wyatt in nashville tennessee i'm joined as always by my buddy jason hello everyone and it's an exciting day for us we're finally getting to this episode that we've talked about for a long time and uh we have a lot to talk about today so let's get right into it so something that i actually forgot to talk about last time was the fact that we were in california for a couple days and I actually took an extra day to do a little Beach Boys location tour with our bandmate Paul and uh, saw some really cool stuff. I went to the uh, Beach Boys Hawthorne Monument. That was actually when when Jason was still with us. Um, He didn't pass away. He just had to leave California. Ah, (laughs) Yeah, we had to go. Uh, And then I also went to the... Hawthorne High School, where Brian went to school, and Carl and Dennis, and uh, that was awesome. Also, Chris Montez went there, and then uh, we also went to the Foster's Freeze. Um, They wrote fun, fun, fun about that hamburger stand and all that fun stuff. It was really cool. And then we went to Brian's home in Hollywood, his first house that he bought on Laurel Way, and that was the coolest part of all because it was like, like taking a time machine back to 1965. And that drive up the hill is incredible, and the view is just breathtaking from the top. And uh, it's such a cool little house, and I wish we had gotten to go in. We actually met the owner, but he didn't speak very good English, so we weren't able to finagle our way our way into, into the house. But anyway, it was really cool nonetheless. And then we went to uh, where Dennis actually drowned and, and where his boat was docked most of the time, the Harmony in the marina del rey heavy it was really heavy it was really really uh eerie to be there and and uh it was really emotional we also went to a couple other spots we went to shay j which was a restaurant that uh dennis would hang out in for the last couple years of his life in santa monica and then we also went by the uh the former site of the brother studio um where the beach boys recorded uh, you know 15 big ones and miu and love you and right downtown in santa monica so that's a really cool thing too uh anyway <clears throat> it was really fun and uh, i recommend everybody do it if you go to la go to some of these places they're easy to find there's some places that we missed but we didn't have a whole lot of time so it could be something that we come back to um next time we're in la maybe we could do like a podcast about all these locations and kind of give our commentary as we go from place to place let me know if y'all are into that idea we can maybe explore that totally so yeah we've been uh on tour we have a tribute band under the same name called sail on we saw our good buddy tad good in iowa i wanted to say shout out to you buddy uh thanks for your help promoting the show and just general good vibes and hangs 
We have a few shows coming up. Actually, our last couple shows of the year. So, Jason, what are we doing? All right. So, on Friday, November 16, we're going to be playing in my hometown and Paul's hometown, too. Charleston, South Carolina at the Charleston Music Hall. One of the nicest places to see a concert in the South, I think. It's very nice. So... If you're in the region, in the city, in the city, in the town, come on down to the Charleston Music Hall on November 16th. The next day, we'll be in Salisbury, North Carolina at the Lee Street Theater. And then Sunday, in Sanford, North Carolina, we're going to play at the Temple Theater. It's a 2 o'clock matinee. So if you want to see us on a Sunday afternoon, the perfect time to do that will be this Sunday coming up on the uh, 18th. So, yeah, our final three shows of the year. Pretty nutty. All right, so let's get into some emails. First one is from Alan Smith. He says, hey, guys, first off, you make a great podcast. Thank you for actually playing the music you're talking about and getting into all the details. Each episode is like hanging out with my cool music nerd buddies. I'm hesitant to write in because I have a different perspective than your other letter writers so far. Through a series of David Marxian missed opportunities, I never grew to like the Beach Boys. My parents weren't big music listeners, so there wasn't the childhood nostalgia factor. When I really heard the Beach Boys later, I was too interested in being edgy punk to care about these hokey oldies. Later, I started a band with a BB fanatic. He really tried to win me over with his self-made smile mixes from tracks he downloaded from mid-90s internet newsgroups and IRC chats. I was underwhelmed. It seemed like an awful lot of work for something that didn't even resemble what I thought of as a real album. Fast forward a few more years and I'm finally getting super into all the classic older music I missed, mostly by listening through Jason Brewer's huge CD binder. (laughs) The Beach Boys were the ones that really didn't stick. I knew Pet Sounds was great and I liked it, The Beatles were over here singing about cool hippie drugs and stuff while the Beach Boys were singing about sailboats or whatever. Is that what a sloop is? Too hokey for this cool punk rocker. And Jason tried, man. He really tried to get me in there. Since your podcast started, I've really been listening to each album along with you. And I think I'm starting to get it. In some ways, being a Beach Boys fan is different than being an obsessive super fan of any other group. They're about both melancholy and innocence and its loss. And in a way, that's unique. And you showed me that it's okay to admit that they also recorded some real stinkers, but even their failures are illustrative in some way. One last thing, getting into the Beach Boys is changing the way I listen to music. I've loved Skylarking, The Soft Bulletin, Loveless, Summer Teeth, etc. for years, but now I can't hear them without hearing the Beach Boys too. Keep up the great work, Alan Smith. Well, hey, Alan, glad you're finally coming around. So funny thing is Alan and I used to be in a band together when we were like 19. Um, so that's pretty cool that you wrote into the show, buddy. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been telling you for a long time, it's really great stuff and you got to kind of look beyond the preconceived notions that a lot of people give the Beach Boys and, you know, Alan's a really talented musician, great piano player, um, just a super intelligent guy overall. So, you know... He, he looks at music probably a lot differently than a lot of my other friends that are big music fans. So it's really cool to see and catch his perspective. So glad you're coming around, buddy. Thanks a lot, Alan. Thanks for checking us out. And thanks for giving the Beach Boys another chance. And I'm glad that we could 
kind of fuel that fire for you. Nice shout out to a couple of my favorite albums, Skylarking by XTC and Loveless by My Bloody Valentine. I'm actually wearing a Loveless t-shirt right now. So TMI, bro. Yeah, TMI. All right, next up, we have an email from Brian Peterson. Dear Wyatt and Jason, thank you both so very much for all of the love and mercy you guys conjure up on each and every sale on episode. Each week or two, I wait with bated breath for the next chapter in a truly never-ending tale. If the Beach Boys' legacy is a giant castle, there are, of course, the famous levels and rooms that have seen plenty of traffic and tourists over the years, but you guys also illuminate the countless hidden hallways and secret passages, blowing off the dust and guiding us through the rarely explored nooks and crannies. In the tradition of amazing Beach Boys authors like John Stebbins, you constantly remind us, with meticulous attention to detail and great respect for the subject, of all the many treasures us fans are lucky enough to share. In the most recent episode, I was especially struck by Wyatt's personal anecdote about the warmth of the sun at his relative's funeral and the general emotion the song holds for him. I can definitely relate, and I bet most other listeners can too. There are so, so, so many amazing facets to the Beach Boys story, and boy, is it the story that truly pulled me in during my teens. But the emotion the boys conjure up in their best work is truly the stuff of magic. These songs are living, breathing entities that my life would be incomplete without. I cannot even begin to fathom the amount of times their work added some music to my day, literally and figuratively. Love, loss, dark nights, sunny mornings. There's rarely a week that goes by when I don't turn to the boys for a lift, smile, or even a blanket-like hug. I wouldn't even know how to properly thank them for the countless moments their music has sustained me or even shoved me forward. As the great paths of wisdom teach, life truly is a mixture of suffering and bliss, order and chaos. The Beach Boys help us navigate both the sunny beaches and the raging waves. They damn sure lived it all, so we could scarcely ask for better guides. You guys provide such a nice blend of history, musicology, and general nerding out that the listener can't help but feel at home. Dare I say it? Yes, I dare. But Sail On is the best music-related podcast that I've yet come across. The hard work and dedication is downright inspiring, fellas. Thanks for the constant entertainment, learning, laughs, and sincerity. I can't thank you guys enough. I hope to soon catch a gig, meet in person, and hopefully talk some shop. All my best, Brian Peterson. What a guy. There are a lot of really awesome music podcasts out there, Wyatt. Man, I know. And that's uh, that's one of the reasons that I started kind of conceptualizing this podcast is because I was listening to a couple of others. And I just was like, man, I wish there was a Beach Boys podcast that did this sort of thing, this sort of journey. So that means a lot to hear that, man. I I, I know I've said it before, but we, we wouldn't be doing this if it weren't for the people that are listening, the people that write in and and share their stories and it really makes this worth it for us because we don't make a dime off this podcast and we put a lot of work into it and it's a labor of love it's a blast to do and we are just obsessed with the music obviously but um this whole thing and the and the the idea behind it wouldn't be able to sustain itself without all you guys so thank you we love you all right we have a another email from our buddy kurt grebe just heard you guys mention my email. What a thrill. Yes, that was me at Sellersville. Sorry I had to run that night. We had a babysitter and an hour drive home. Would have loved to hang out and chat, but unfortunately, them's the shakes with young kids. Glad I at least got to say hi. Would love to see you guys again at a rumored Baltimore gig in the future. Well, I think we have one in April. Yeah, we're playing at Ramshead in April. So stay tuned for that. Sellersville show was great. I couldn't believe how many songs you fit in the first set. It was crazy. Jason, it was a joy watching how much fun you looked like you had shredding. 
Wyatt, kudos on the bass and falsetto. I can see what you mean from the latest episode in the terms of difficulty. On to the Beach Boys. After I emailed, I hear you mention you were good with Please Let Me Wonder, so phew. Also, you again opened my ears to something stupid. Never heard before, but after you played it, I went and played and replayed it by everyone who'd covered it, and probably way too many times, so thank you. Interesting stuff with the Wrecking Crew. I had no idea they were in so many iconic songs. Listening to the Beach Boys today, still, and that is a great album. I'm looking forward to your review. I'm still not super familiar with any post-Pet Sound stuff, but I'm, wor- I'm waiting to discover it through you guys. So you have to keep going. Kurt. That's pretty awesome. Glad you could make the show, buddy. And, uh, you know, the Wrecking Crew was such a big revelation to me when I kind of first figured out, oh, it's all these guys on all these records. So I'm glad you brought that up again. And you can really kind of hear the hallmarks of, of their collective through not only all these Beach Boys tunes, but all that other stuff that we talked about too. But it's interesting when Brian uses them, I feel like they might be at their best, which I think we talked about on that podcast, uh, just because he did a little more unique take on all the different combinations of sounds than probably any of the other producers did. So, but anyway, um, yeah, really great. Glad you could see us in Sellersville and hopefully we'll see you again. All right. Thank you very much, Kurt, for writing in, for coming to see us play, and for sharing your story. All right. So a few weeks ago, we were talking about the Beach Boys concert. That was August 1st, 1964, when they recorded that, and they were in the middle of a huge tour, a tour that really lasted the entire year of 1964. And they were taking time in between dates to get into the studio and write and record. And it was just a whirlwind year. And by this point in the year near the end of the summer they were on such a crazy tear they had several singles on the charts i get around was their first number one and they were playing tv shows they were uh playing bigger venues they were they had a 20 grand a night guarantee at this point they were doing really well and they were not showing any signs of slowing down so on august 5th 1964 they went into western studios to record a new single, and this song is called When I Grow Up to Be a Man. I can get it. Here we go! How's the same? When I grow up, 1A. Do you hear two balls now? <laughs> I mean, Let's hit it. Let's hit it. Come on. Let's go. When I grow up to be Be happy. Yeah. There we go. Twelve eight. Pretty bad. Ten hours. Shh. When I grow up to be a man, will I dig the same things that turned me on as a kid? Will I look back and say that I wish I hadn't done what I did? You know, I think Mike summed it up pretty well by saying Murray had bullied Brian for years, but he increasingly called into question his manhood. 
If you were a man, you would tell Mike to stand closer to the microphone. If you were a man, you would tell Carl and Dennis to brush up on their harmonies. If you were a man, if you were a man, man came up all the time, which probably influenced Brian's idea for the song. So you can definitely feel that kind of longing and that kind of childhood disappearing for Brian and Mike here, and uh, it's a really fantastic song. Will my kids be proud or think they're old? Brian says, there was lots of pressure on us because it was the next single after I Get Around, which was our first big hit. It had been number one on July 4th weekend. It must have gotten played at every barbecue. A month after that, we headed back into the studio to make the follow-up. It was just the Lean Mean Band, me and my brothers along with Mike and Al. I had the instrumental track done, and then we started writing the lyrics. I did most of them, and Mike did some too. We were really trying hard to think about growing older. We were trying to think about things that would happen in the future, and whether we would recognize the people we become. When you stand in front of a mirror, you're changing. It's like a movie, but how fast are you changing? We did that song in early August, and it was out by the end of the month. That's how fast everything went back then. The building was going up overnight. We did that song at Western, in room three, which was the best. We did almost 40 takes over six days. Can you believe that? 40 takes? You can hear me counting out each one. Sometimes we got as far as a few bass notes from Al before it fell apart. Sometimes we got through my first piano part. We didn't even get to the vocals for a while, but when we did, those gave me fits too. I wanted to sound like an update of the four freshmen, but my voice sounded too thin. People tell me you can find those tapes sometimes circulating, circulating around with names like When I Grow Up To Be A Man, Second Vocal Overdub, Take 14. It's exhausting to look at and to think of how far we went in search of the perfect thing. We didn't know we were making history, but that's what we were making. Uh, what I took from uh, some of these vocal sessions was that they were bickering a lot and it was pretty tense and they were kind of um, getting impatient with each other. I think they were on tour so much and they were just together every day, all day, and uh, the schedule was kind of wearing them down a little bit. And they're still really young guys, so um, you can imagine they were fighting a lot and I'm sure they were uh, just worn down at this point. It's a pretty intricate tune to do without using like Wrecking Crew and stuff, you know? So I can see where, you know, the, obviously all the things you said and all the tense moments, but yeah, I've listened to those sessions before and I mean, they pushed hard to be perfect because like I was saying a minute ago, it's an intricate tune, so pretty rad. The ending of the song always really stuck with me, like how they kept counting up, you know? Um, in the backing vocals, 13, 14, 15, 16. And I was like, man, I wonder how high they went to. Because <laughs> it just fades 22, out. 22. I think I hear 31. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I always thought that was really clever and... Um, it's it's just such a great it's such a great song, man. I know I hear what Brian's saying about how he doesn't like his voice because when he does sing a lot of that high stuff, sometimes he gets a little bit whiny. But I think it's just awesome. I think the vocals are great. 
I think the playing is really good. I think it's surprising that on some of these songs where I think maybe they were just in such a hurry or, you know, they had like a limited amount of time that they could get into the studio. The wrecking crew probably was, was booked somewhere else, maybe working for, um, another artist. So, um, getting in there and just doing it themselves, that's probably why it took so long, but it also is really, really well played. Um, and, uh, the only thing they added on this song was uh, double reed harmonica, which um, sounds sort of like an accordion. But Brian does the uh, piano and harpsichord, and all the guitars are by Carl. Um, you know, pretty great drumming by Dennis, and uh, Al plays the bass, and I think it just sounds awesome. I think they did a great job, and the 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 sounds they were getting were fantastic. Chuck Britt's engineering, of course. Um, it's just, it's an awesome song. Um, I give it an eight out of 10. Yeah. I mean, it's such, it's one of their, you know, first real, I'm not going to say first real, but I'd say it's a super duper breakthrough single. It's a unique sound. It's one of the first mainstream rock songs, pop songs, radio songs of the time that had like harpsichord on it. Sure. Um, uh, you know, it probably has appeared on other things, but you know, during the era when it started becoming a thing, like on Beatles and Rolling Stones and all the British groups and even American groups after that, I mean, you really, I Get Around has a little bit on it, I think, as well. So, you know, these first couple that have it for them, I think he was an early adapter to having that as part of the rock sound, which I think is awesome. Um, so, yeah, I agree with you. I'm going to go eight out of 10. It's awesome. I'm trying to think when did um <laughs> when did the anaheim azusa and cucamonga sewing circle song come out because doesn't that have harpsichord on it <laughs> i don't know i don't think it's i know you're such a big jan and dean fan so i don't think it's i i feel like that's probably around the same time as all this stuff okay yeah i um, mean because i don't know i have to look it up but i get around was a number one with, yeah yeah with harpsichord come on man um anyways any of you jan and dean fans come on and write us and uh tell us that jan and dean revolutionized the you know pop recording world with harpsichord 11 bees for wasps a turtle (laughs) yeah great song great playing they were also doing the b-side at the same session which was called she knows me too well you ready she knows me too well. Track, take one. One, two, three, go. Take two. One, two, one, two, three, go. Sometimes I have a weird way of showing my love, and I always expect her to know what. song the song written by brian and mike 
I've heard that this was the first song that Brian wrote while he was under the influence of marijuana. Uh, but I've also heard that he didn't start smoking marijuana until the winter of 64 when Lauren Schwartz was having those parties, you know, with like David Crosby and, you know, Terry Melcher and whoever else. But, uh, you know, just an interesting little tidbit. You can definitely feel that um, there's a little bit more going on here as far as the composition and some of the mood here um, we're starting to get into what what sounds to me like a precursor to pet sounds and some of the arrangement ideas and uh, just general vibe of the song we're really far beyond august 1964 at this point um but uh brian called this his tribute to burt Bacharach. um the chord pattern and kind of the rhythm of the song definitely evokes some of the early burt Bacharach uh tunes so um yeah, what a fantastic song. The very beginning of it that is super eerie, the chords that don't really seem to fit together very well, and it's kind of hard to tell what key the song is in. It's kind of going all over the place, and then you get to the chorus, and it's a very familiar kind of Beach Boys progression and, and melody, and it just feels just so awesome when you get there. And then you get back to the verse, and it's kind of like the uncertainty. kind of goes along with, you know, Mike and Brian being young dudes that were going through some struggles relationship wise mike had just gotten a divorce earlier that year from his first wife who he had two kids with mike always struggled with infidelity out on the road and stuff and i know brian was also just struggling with coming to terms with the fact that he was in love with a 15 year old and a jewish girl at that i think i know that was a big deal for for him uh because back then it was kind of uh, controversial for a Christian boy to be dating a Jewish girl. Uh, it's kind of hard to believe now, but it really was an issue. And Dennis was also dating a Jewish girl who he was kind of keeping secret from their parents. But Brian moved into an apartment around this time because he was living with the Rovells for a little while. And um, when Marilyn was old enough, she got a scooter and would... would go over to Brian's house on the scooter, which was like, it was two miles away or something like that. But for a 15 year old late at night to drive out to this guy's apartment, I mean, it was kind of scandalous. And it was also, you know, really frustrating for the two of them because he was gone all the time and, and she was too young to really, you know, make her own decisions and go where she wanted. Um, even though her parents really loved Brian, yeah, but, um, they weren't old enough to live together, obviously. And this really, uh, made Brian insecure and uh you know there's a lot of that in some of these songs and it made for some great tunes for sure yeah I mean it's got you know super melancholy vibes probably and this is going to sound strange but this is kind of what I've always thought about this it sounds like we're transition transitioning from teenage you know melancholy to more like straight up adult melancholy does that make sense yeah of course it just it has a more it has a more sophisticated feel musically and mood and all that stuff but it's it's kind of like the way i liken it to is another one of my favorite songwriters where you know jimmy webb was a really young guy when he was writing all these songs that dealt with really seriously adult problems and adult thought and brian's kind of you know, in that same zone here, 
because uh, people used to always would say to like Jimmy Webb, I read in his book, they would say, oh, how can you be dealing with all these complex emotions and you're like 19? And so I think part of that has something to do with the mood and the the chord changes and all that stuff kind of coming together. You know, and then you mentioned Bacharach a minute ago, and he's kind of an adult, always been the adult contemporary guy, you know? Oh, yeah. And so, and so, you know, where if Brian's aiming for that, he not only nails kind of the sound, but he nails almost like the Burt Bacharach mood, like the adult mood of everything about it. So, I don't know. That's pretty special, if you ask me. Also, just the Beach Boys on this recording, and they did an awesome job. I love Carl's guitar solo on this one. The kind of super cool sound, kind of moody, yeah, like a um, little bit more like uh, low register and more melodic than a lot of the other guitar solos that he had done up to this point. So really cool. I mean, this, this really doesn't. This really doesn't sound like anybody else, too, and it doesn't even sound like the Beach Boys, which right. is awesome. Like if you took their vocals off of it, you know, um, obviously when they sing, their signature comes through. But I mean, it doesn't sound like a Beatles record. It doesn't sound like a surf record. It doesn't sound like a Phil Spector record either. This is, I mean, that's why, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this a lot, but this is like a new sound. This is heading in a new direction. This is a, it's its own, own monster. And I think... You know, Brian's had a style and had a thing, but this is, I mean, you know, this is when he's really starting to break away. We're we're going through these songs, just a aside here. We're going through this era and this album um, chronologically because it was recorded over such a big span of time. And I think it's cool to show how the band grew over that time in the studio and as people and all the things they went through. So um, this is also on the Today album and it's on side two, which is a more melancholy side, more ballad based. Um, and this is one of my favorite songs on the record. And, you know, I've said it before, but this record was one of my favorite records ever since I heard it. So um, I also give this an eight out of 10. I'm a big fan of this song. I love the mood of it. Um, I've actually covered it before with one of my bands and it's, it's an extremely hard song to, to play and sing, um, but I just love it. It's it's uh, It really encapsulates this time period of late 64 for me, for Brian and the boys. Yeah, uh, we agree as well. Eight out of ten. Um, can't say much more than I already said and you already said. It's brilliant. Yeah. Also, just I love hearing Dennis prominently in the harmony stack on this song. I always love when I can hear Dennis pop out of the harmony stack. I know it's kind of the probably what they didn't want to happen, but I don't know. I get a kick out of it, and it always just kind of makes me feel good to, to think about Dennis in there, you know, trying to blend, but he's got such a different tonal quality to his voice. Um, and as he gets older, you can start really hearing him stick out. But what a great song. Um, what a great single. So this single came out on august 24th and uh, when i grew up to be a man actually reached number nine on the hot 100 i didn't realize that it did so well um, they had so many singles in 64 and this was just another one that was climbing the charts and you know battling with themselves like the beatles did at this time um so i think that's really awesome you still you still hear if you've got all these radio on any sort of 
way you still hear this one a pretty decent amount and she knows me too well actually reached number 101 the b-side so thought that was kind of nice cool. all this time you know like i said the beach boys were on tour and they were playing shows around these session dates um on august 17th brian was in the studio again with his buddy bob norberg um his old roommate and sometimes bandmate for a new session for a song called Baby What You Want Me To Do written by Jimmy Reed You got me running You got me hiding You got me run, hide, hide, run Anything you want now, let it roll Yeah, yeah, yeah You got me doing what you want me Baby, what you want me to do This was done at Western with the Wrecking Crew, and the song would, wouldn't be released until um, a year later, and it would be under the moniker Bob and Bobby. So we've, <laughs> we've got, you know, several different versions of Bob Norberg and some female companion. This is the newest one, and uh, it's a pretty cool little song. Um, it's, uh, it's got great playing on it, great arrangement. Um, and uh, I, it was one that I hadn't heard before until pretty recently, I guess like maybe a couple years ago. But it's on that L.A. Gemstones box set that Jason actually cued me into, um, which has a ton of Beach Boys-related artists on it. And um, I think anybody that is into this kind of music should check it out. Oh, yeah, I love that box set. And uh, this little tune, like I, I told Wyatt earlier, I mean... I didn't hear this until that gemstone, this version, until I got that gemstones box set. But I'd heard this song before because I'm a big Elvis fan. Elvis did this song on the 1968 comeback special where he's sitting around the in the circle with all his buddies just jamming, and he goes back to this tune like a ton where he's just sitting there playing it. And he probably knew it. Maybe there's a different. There's probably a different version out there that he knew. So. You know, he Elvis Elvis it up, but it's cool to hear it in this context with the Brian sound and the harmonicas and all that stuff. Yeah, a really fun track, and and it's cool that Brian was taking every opportunity he had to keep working on his production craft for other artists. Um, love that, uh, and uh, fun little song. Hope you guys dig it. And then uh, back on the road again. And then up to September 9th, the boys found time to get in the studio to do a cover of So Young, which is uh, a song that had been done a few times by a few artists, most notably for Brian's sake, it was done by Veronica, who would later be known as Ronnie Spector. And it's obvious that Brian heard that version and was just enamored by it and said oh man we got to do this song it would be perfect for us so they went into the studio and and did a version of this with with a couple extra guys i think they had a couple bass players come in and then also a flute player so a really cool track but this this version itself did not make the record it wasn't released it's a little too loose it's very loose and i feel like you know the vocals were a little bit 
um, rushed. Um, it just didn't feel as tight and as put together as the final version, which we'll get to eventually. I have a girlfriend. She says I'm her only It's interesting about the flute, like where he got the idea to just, hey, we're just going to bring in a flute player, not horns, not harmonica, not, you know, accordion or anything like that. He just wanted a flute. Interesting. But uh, moving on, a couple days later, on September 16th, the boys were back in the studio doing a new song called All Dressed Up for School. And uh, this song actually started as a song called What Will I Wear to School Today, which I think was written by Brian and Roger Christian. And it was going to be a song for Sharon Marie. If you guys remember, this was like a, an early girlfriend of Mike Loves who Brian produced a couple tracks for. Um, but they never recorded that version, so the Beach Boys gave it a shot. And I think Brian rewrote the lyrics. This song would be recycled because it was never released. So it, it was, you know, kind of reworked into I Just Got My Pay in 1969, um, which was another outtake from the Sunflower era. So that song would also be reworked into Marcella, which was a single off of the Carl and the Passions album. So this is something that we see a lot, songs that Brian doesn't finish or, or isn't satisfied with he'll recycle the melodies or some of the ideas into another song um, and this actually had a recycled idea from the Honda 55 jingle that we talked about a couple weeks ago there's another recycled melody in this the intro um, if you'll notice has um, a very strong resemblance to the heroes and villains uh, acapella break um, and then also after that in 1980, the going on intro. Don't forget Louis, Louis, Louis. Oh, I'm sorry. Huh? Yes. Louis, Louis. Um, but yeah, going on the intro of that is the same chord progression. So lots of recycled ideas and themes here. Um, but it's just, it's I, just like I wonder a what happened. A variations on a theme, you know? Right, right. But yeah, I have to wonder what happened with this song, um, why it never made the Today album or why it wasn't released as a B-side or something like that. Because um, I think it's a really good song. 
Yeah, it is. I love it. I think it's awesome. Seven out of ten, right out the gate, right there. <laughs> there he is. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I give it a seven out of ten as well. We're on full agreement here. But I mean, but I would say I think the reason why is it doesn't fit. I mean, even the the fun side of the Today record with the dance songs and all that stuff. There's no goofball songs. Yeah, yeah. But I will say I would have taken this somewhere in the time span of the record on the end of that first side before we're. Mm. You know, instead of uh, maybe a bull session with Big Daddy at the end. That's what I was thinking is like, yeah, you or, you know, I mean, as much as as much as I like, you know, their recording of Do You Want to Dance? Like, I'd rather have an original tune on there. So, you know, just uh, just a thought. But um, it was also one of those songs that had kind of a weird, creepy lyric, you know, that they were kind of. It's probably just too too It was a little bit too hornball. And I mean, for that to not make a record but then you know to put something like um hey little tomboy on a record it's like uh, at that point like who cares and this guy convinces her to become a pretty girl and sure enough she slowly turns into pretty starts shaving her legs and <laughs> wears short skirts and you know and, and puts some lipstick on and makeup so she's a little tomboy and that's one of the songs so we're very happy with it i think um one of the other cool things about this song is that al sings the falsetto lead on the chorus which is pretty neat. I did not know that until I did some research. And if you listen to the vocal takes, you can really tell that it's Al. Um, I wonder why that was happening. I think um, a couple people have theorized that Brian was trying to work his way out of the live band and putting Al on the falsetto was his way of kind of distancing himself um, from his obligation to be out on the road. So that's an interesting theory. There doesn't seem to be any reason why Brian isn't singing the the lead falsetto part. Anyway, Al does a great job. I mean, obviously, Al's awesome. He's the man. Shout out to our Al Jardine episode from last month. But um, the ending is basically just Papa Oom um, Mau Mau, <laughs> which is hilarious. I think they were doing that every night on tour, you know? So maybe they were just like, I don't know. They were just feeling that that groove. So they just basically threw it at the end yeah, of the song. I really like it in this context. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny. It's, uh, it's very blatant, like the backing vocals. And even, I think Mike even starts singing a little bit of Papa Oom um, Mau but yeah, I mean, who knows this song was, was, you know, just another one that, that Brian started and picked up way later and, uh, came out, I think on the twofers in uh like 1990 or whatever but um yeah what a cool song and uh really really great a few days later uh capital released an ep called four by the beach boys and um it didn't do super well i think a uh, little honda went to number 65 and wendy went to number 44 but it was the only ep the beach boys ever released if you don't count the uh, mount vernon and fairway ep but um, it's interesting. It was Windy, Don't Back Down, Little Honda, and Hushabye. So all songs from all summer long. And uh, my theory is that about a month earlier, the Hondells had a big hit with Little Honda. And I think Capital was scrambling to put together something by the Beach Boys to capitalize on the success of that song since they didn't put it out as a single. Yeah. So. But that, I mean, and they also just had, you know, they just had these songs that were great songs and probably single worthy songs all on their own right. And they were just like, let's throw this out there and let's see what sticks. 
I mean, it's a EP of tunes. We know I can see why it didn't do that well because it didn't have a. I mean, I understand Little Honda doing well, but it didn't have like a gangbusters summer slash fall whatever big hit. Yeah. On it, like it's all awesome songs, but it was all right. kind of like album tracks. Yeah, I mean, I think you know they were just trying to keep the momentum going because they hadn't put out the concert album yet and they hadn't put out the christmas album yet and they wanted to have something kind of to tide people over until then that was more than just an a-side b-side so just um, feeding the machine man it's crazy i mean they they put out so much material and recorded so much material in this in this year and a half span uh again like they're still on tour at all this time it's kind of amazing um sometimes doing two or three shows in a day um, luckily for them, their, their set times were only around 30 minutes. So they weren't playing super long gigs, but they were playing a lot and frequently. And, um, on September 22nd, they played here in our hometown of Nashville, Tennessee. You, you were at, at the that municipal show, right? auditorium. Yeah, I was there. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but, uh, it's crazy, man, that they played at the municipal auditorium in 1964. And I, walk by that auditorium all the time because i live like downtown and it's crazy every time i go by there i think about the the times that the beach boys played there and man it's just it's just crazy to think about 1964 man so yeah did they try um, to did they try to play there with the maharishi later yes and we'll get to that in a few years (laughs) um but yeah they did they tried to play there with the maharishi and that did not work but anyway um the the same day they actually th- they actually went into Columbia Studios here in Nashville to do a new song because again they were just trying to get some stuff done and trying to record whenever they could so there was a back then there weren't a ton of professional recording studios throughout the US like there are now but there was obviously plenty in Nashville so they went into Columbia Studio B and did Dance 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 the first version, um, slightly different lyrics, slightly different arrangement, no key change, and um, a little bit more uh, subdued uh, feel to it. And I think they they just didn't love this version, so they ended up redoing it. But um, it's interesting to hear this first version. There's some uh, there's some little things that you pick up on that that didn't carry over to the final version. And also, this is just the boys playing, not the Wrecking Crew. So probably for the best that they waited to do this properly in LA. After six hours of school, I've had enough for the day. I hit the radio dial and turn it up all the way. You gotta do So think about this, that Columbia studio, lots of, you know, monumental recording acts have gone through there, I'm sure. But, yeah. I mean, three of three of the biggest American titans of, of rock and roll, you know, did stuff there. We, you know, the Beach Boys did that there, which is amazing. But Bob Dylan cut a bunch of his really big mid-60s records there. Yep. And then, you know, what I consider to be on par with 
you know, Pet Sounds in terms of greatest recordings ever is uh, the single The Boxer by Simon and Garfunkel. Oh, yeah. So, so all of that stuff went down in that room, even a little dance, dance, dance. Pretty awesome. Oh, yeah. Um, even though this didn't get released, but uh, still really cool, fun fact that the Beach Boys recorded in Nashville at, uh, at this point. Um, so, yeah, they, they, they're back on the road and heading up north, and they have a very important date with Mr. Ed Sullivan on September 27th. Yeah. This was a huge big deal obviously. I mean, being on the Ed Sullivan show was, you know, you know you know that everyone's going to be watching. So, they pulled out their big guns. They did I Get Around and then they also did Wendy trying to promote that um that EP. Um, Those cool cars on the stage. Yeah, what a great what a great set and what a great performance. And um I especially wanted to highlight their performance of Wendy because you don't really get to hear them do Wendy live from this era very often, especially with this kind of fidelity. And it was recorded really well, and um, it's really awesome to hear them as a five-piece doing Wendy um, and kind of doing a more rock combo version of it. And it wasn't like it, it. It. I don't know. It just. It just wasn't. You know. It. It wasn't like the record, but to me, like it's almost better. Like it's just such a cool vibe. It just sounds. It just sounds so much more um, sparse, and I love Dennis's drumming, and I love that Brian and Mike double the lead vocal on the little uh, counter melody. It's just such a cool, cool performance, and Carl's little flub at the beginning, and then just all really, really cool stuff. Yeah, they were rocking. So another interesting thing that happened in this era that I never knew about is on October 5th, NBC airs a new show that was called Karen, which featured the Beach Boys doing the title theme. And I had no idea until recently that this even existed. So doing a little bit of research, um, I found out that it was written by Jack Marshall and Bob Mosher. And Bob Mosher was the producer. He also produced Leave It to Beaver. So I think this was kind of a uh, female version of Leave It to Beaver. I never saw the show. It only lasted one season. And I don't, I don't even know if you can watch the show. But um, the song um, is really fun. And I love hearing the Beach Boys do a theme song like, like this. It reminds me a little bit of Monkey's Uncle because yeah. obviously they just probably came into the studio and blasted out these vocals and then um, got out of there never to be heard from again. But um, the, it's really interesting how the song starts off. It sounds like Miserloo. She's a doll, she's a queen, she's a tantalizing teen, and Karen is her name. They call it Karen. At a party, she's a snobber and a rock and rolling romper. Everybody's glad she came. Hey, that's Karen! 
can't even write a book report There is no one greater north or south of the equator Karen's always in a world She's alarming but disarming And a really very charming modern girl Yeah, I like that intro It's always, uh, I've heard it a few times now We were talking about this before we hit record But yeah, that intro is Trying a little surf throwback. Oh, it's kind of almost announcing in the theme song. Oh, this is the Beach Boys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it doesn't. I mean, I don't know. It has nothing to do with the show. It's like the show about this apartment complex family. I don't know. It's just I don't really know what the show was about. I know it was like a. It was this new thing that NBC was trying to do, where they had three shows that all took place in the same apartment. So it was like kind of like a triple crossover type thing and none of the shows really did well. So never really worked out, but it was a cool concept. The Beach Boys would also go on to be uh, on other sitcoms much later, such as Home Improvement and of course Full House. But we'll get to that. Titans of the industry, I tell you. Man, I can't wait to get to that era. Beach Boy Huddle. Moving on, we've got another session. So here they are back in Los Angeles, October 9th in RCA Studios for another recording of Dance, Dance, Dance. This would be the album version of Dance, Dance, Dance that we know and love. A little, you know, more of me on the thing. Not on the, you know, about like I am on the, on the lick and down on the rhythm a little. Okay. Okay. After six hours of school, I had enough for the day. I hit the radio dial and tuned it up all the way. I got a dance, 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 now the beat's really hard. Dance, 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 right there. The score's really hard. Dance, 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 now the beat's really hard. This one features the awesome key change in the middle of the third verse, um, and also the Wrecking Crew on you know percussion, guitar, saxophone, um, bass, you know, adding all those things. But the Beach Boys are also here too. You know, Dennis is still playing drums, Carl's playing lead guitar, um, Brian's playing bass as well, and Al's playing rhythm guitar. So it's, in my opinion, one of the best. Um, you know, kind of core groups of instrumentalists that they use in this time. You know, you've got Hal Blaine, Glenn Campbell, um, Ray Pullman, uh, just a really, really tight group of dudes that were really rocking and on top of the Beach Boys already rocking core. Um, that combo rock sound was just amplified. And what a cool track. What a great performance by everyone here. The, the vocals are outstanding. Um, it's one of my favorite 
Mike Love lead vocals, this song. I just love it. It's just so powerful. The key change just knocks me out. Um, whenever we play this one, man, it's just like one of the most amped up times of the of the set. So I totally get it, man. It's like what a what a great song. What a great recording. Yeah, I mean, I, I love this song, man. I give it an eight out of ten. It's hard for me. I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. I want to give it a higher rating, but then I'm you know, starting to land into crazy town when I do that. <laughs> but, yeah. um, man, I think not because it didn't have as much cultural significance or single significance, but this is one of their best rock and roll songs. It's awesome. And Carl and Glenn Campbell alternating those the licks and stuff throughout that. And it's super cool. And it's it's up there with any Beatles early rocker, if you ask me, just in terms of, you know, arrangement and performance and vocals and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, eight out of ten, a strong eight. How about that? Awesome. I love um, also that this was a Carl Wilson writing credit because he wrote the lick, the main riff of the song. Really cool. Moving on. So they did release that song um, a few weeks later, uh, October 26th. So Dance, Dance, Dance with the B-side Warmth of the Sun was released, and it was number eight on the Hot 100. Again, just tearing through singles and tearing through the charts. Like every month there was a new Beach Boys single. Pretty exciting. And, you know, they, they just didn't have time to actually record a full album at this point. They were on the road constantly. So whenever they had a chance, they were just in the studio doing song by song and trying to find that next big hit. So moving right along, we've got one of my favorite things that we've ever talked about. We've talked about it at least five times already, and we haven't even gotten up to the actual song recording yet. But on October 14th, the Beach Boys went in to Western Studios to record a new song called Guess I'm Dumb. Okay, close the door. I don't have a title. I think it's called If I'm Dumb or something like that. At the time, this was going to be a song for the Today album. And um, for whatever reason, the track sat around for a little while. I'm not sure if they ever put vocals on it other than the honeys on the backing vocals. Um, But um, it ended up being a Glenn Campbell song. Um, And when Glenn Campbell finally came in to do the vocals this was after he had already been playing um not only in the studio with the beach boys but he filled in for brian spoiler alert um Mm -hmm. in early 65 because brian left the left the group uh as far as he left the touring group which we'll get to next week but it's uh from what i understand brian gave this song to glenn as a gift and kind of as you know 
a a token of of goodwill because of all he had done for the band and um one of the most amazing things that's ever been recorded um (laughs) i don't say that lightly man it's one of my favorite recordings of all time um it's unlike putting you on the spot rate it (laughs) hold on it's unlike anything else the beach boys have ever recorded um, and I understand maybe why they, they were hesitant to put it on the album. It's a little too similar to some of the other feels. Um, I guess like it, it reminds me a lot of, you know, um, uh, in the back of my mind or something like that. But I would have loved to have heard the Beach Boys sing this song and Brian on lead. But um, man, how about it, just a standalone n- single? It would have been killing. not to take anything away from the Glenn Campbell version because it is spectacular. And the vocal that Glenn does on this is otherworldly. The way I act don't seem like me. I'm not on top like I used to be. Like you've been when I know I should be strong. I still give in even though I know. I can't say enough good things about it. It's a great recording. I mean, you've got Brian playing piano, Carl playing the 12 string. And then other than that, you've got just an awesome group of musicians featuring Hal Blaine, Glenn Campbell, Steve Douglas, Larry Nechtel, Tommy Tedesco. I mean, the list goes on and on. It's probably one of the biggest groups that they ever brought into the studio at this point. Um, You've got a huge uh, sound. You've got great string arrangement i mean it's just an awesome song that brian wrote with um his buddy russ Titleman. but um such a such an awesome song i know i keep saying that but it's one of my favorite songs of all time it gets a 10 out of 10 for me boom whoa i'm big I, i'm gonna go nine i'm gonna go nine out of ten only because it wasn't I tell you what, my only complaint about the whole and the only thing, reason I'm rating it is because you asked me to because it's not a Beach Boys song. But if you want me to rate it, right. and it doesn't count as a ten out of ten for Beach Boys, but it is a ten out of ten right. for me for personally, Glenn for Glenn Campbell, for life, <laughs> for for anything. But it is not the first ten out of ten by the Beach Boys. Let's just clear that up. I have not given a ten out of ten yet. All right. Well. That being said, I mean, I'm going to go 9 out of 10 just because I wish that it would have a little more Wilson harmony in there, but that's my only beef. Like, just a little more, you know? Because I... Yeah. I don't know. That's all. I mean, other than that, it's, uh... It's excellent. Yes, I'm dumb. cannot get enough of it it's a great great tune and i love the story behind it and i love that um that brian you know gave glenn such an awesome tune and it wasn't really a big hit at all but man what a tune and i think you know it's been on a few like glenn campbell compilations and stuff and i'm sure people have been like what's this about like what is this what is this song um anyway let's move on we've got a couple more things to get to here it's a lot, man. There's so much going on in this dang 
late 1964 period. So that's why we're kind of splitting it up. Um, but on October 19th, the Beach Boys released their first number one record, Beach Boys Concert, which we talked about a lot. But just, yep. man, what a crazy year. In October 26th, Dance, Dance, Dance came out, reached number eight. On October 28th, the Beach Boys went to Santa Monica Civic Auditorium to film their performance for the Tammy Show, which was one of those like kind of um, shown in theaters music concert experiences for teenagers. It was called Teenage Awards Music International, which I don't know what that means. But um, anyway, they did this performance. They did... Um, Surfing USA, I Get Around, Surfer Girl, and Dance, Dance, Dance. And it is a killer performance. The sound isn't super great because it's just so loud. There's like screaming girls and all that. But man, this is one of those things that you see on a lot of the documentaries. Um, and <clears throat> the boys just look like they're having a blast and they're firing on all cylinders. And it really shows that they've been touring so much. They are just tight as can be and just rocking out. Round, round, gear up, I do This performance never actually showed on the film for whatever reason. I think um, some people said that Brian Wilson wasn't happy with the performance, but some people said that it was due to some sort of contractual issue. But for whatever reason, it didn't come out on the actual film version, but it came out years later on a DVD. Um, on the actual film, there was also Chuck Berry, James Brown, Marvin Gaye, Leslie Gore, Jan and Dean, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, the Rolling Stones, the Supremes, and the house band featured Hal Blaine, Glenn Campbell, and Leon Russell. So, I mean, what a cool thing. It's just thing. like everybody's there except for the Beatles, essentially. It was pretty much everybody, and it was a huge deal. So it's it's um, must have been a blast for them. And even though it didn't air at the time, um, you can watch these on YouTube and, and wherever else, and these performances are fantastic. The boys went on to tour back out east. Um, they did one gig out in Massachusetts at the Memorial Auditorium in, in Worcester. And the show was so rowdy and there were so many people there that were freaking out that there actually started a riot and they had to stop after a few songs. And um, I'm sure the concert promoters lost money and all that stuff, but it just shows like how big the Beach Boys were at this time. They were playing venues where, you know, they just couldn't contain the excitement, um, much like the Beatles. Um, and I think, you know, we start to understand why Brian was growing tired of the rigorous touring. So they're back home on Halloween. And then on November 1st, the band is leaving for their first European tour, which we will continue with on the next episode. 
on today part two and we'll talk about the rest of the songs on the record to talk about what what the beach boys were going through and we'll find out why brian stopped touring with the beach boys boom so thank you guys for listening hope you add some music to your day and um as always please give us a shout you can leave us a voicemail at 615-606-3887 send us a email at sailonpodcast at gmail.com you can check us out on the web look at our uh tour dates at sailonsounds.com and as always our music provided by the wonderful will c at willcmusic.com so until next time this is wyatt and that's jason yeah buddy and sail on sailors are making noise hey y'all chill chill out everybody chill